stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, here we go. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Tuesday afternoon on the Chorus Radio Network. Plenty still to get to uh, over the course of this hour. Time for your phone calls as well. But we're going to begin in this hour, though, a conversation about the needs of the Canadian military, uh, the Canadian forces, and I, I suppose to some extent what we want it to be. I don't think we've gone, done a good job of supplying the Canadian forces with what it needs. New warships, new helicopters, new fighter jets are the items on the list. Certainly when it comes to fighter jets, uh, it's become a bit of a mess. Uh, the, the previous Harper government went through a whole process of uh, trying to select a new fighter jet. Then the Trudeau government came in and uh, the whole process started all over again. And still feels like, I don't know if we're any closer to, to buying those new fighter jets. The fighter jets we have obviously are aging, are in need of replacement. But maybe there's another question to consider. Uh, should they be replaced at all? Are fighter jets something that the Canadian forces need? Well, there's a, a campaign that's been launched urging the federal government to abandon plans to purchase new fighter jets. More than 100 signatories uh, to a letter to the prime minister, including some uh, notable names like Neil Young, David Suzuki, Elizabeth May, Naomi Klein, Noam Chomsky... Uh, Daryl Hannah, the actress, Roger Waters uh, of Pink Floyd, among others, saying that we don't need and shouldn't want new fighter jets, which admittedly do come with a considerable price tag. Uh, joining us on the line and other signatories to this uh, letter, one of the organizers of this campaign, Tamara Lawrence, is a PhD candidate at the Balsillie School of International Affairs at Wilfrid Laurier University, also a fellow at the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, foreignpolicy.ca. Joins us on the line here this afternoon. Tamara, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, well, let me get you here to, to lay out the case for why you believe that Canada does not need new fighter jets. Well, we are in a climate emergency. There are uh, hundreds of fires burning in Western Canada. Right now where I am in Ontario, there are 100 out-of-control forest fires, and we have an air quality advisory uh, again today. Uh, it's very smoky here. There's high particulate matter, and uh, the government has said, you know, to be careful because, you know, for, for um, you know, people with, with um, compressed or suppressed um, respiratory uh, systems to, you know, to be very careful because of of the smoky conditions and it's the same in western canada you know there's 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 a drought there's these forest fires there are these heat waves and so the priority is uh dealing with the climate emergency and investing in solutions that are going to address that because that's the threat that's going that's affecting all of us there's also uh, there's also the issue of affordable housing in this country and chronic homelessness. We still have, you know, 51 uh, wa boil water advisories in about 32 First Nations communities across the country. So those are our most pressing security needs. And we want the federal government to invest in those priorities. Uh, a, a new fleet of fighter jets is extremely costly. The price tag is $19 billion for 88. But we know 
based on uh, previous parliamentary budget officer estimates as well as estimates from the U.S. Government Accountability Office that the estimated life cycle cost for a new fleet of fighter jets will be upwards of $77 billion. And we believe that Canadian tax dollars should stay at home. They should not be going to U.S. weapons manufacturers. And for them to be profiting um, from, you know, from this purchase and that it should be investing in the urgent environmental and social needs of Canadians. And that's things like climate action, affordable housing, health care, education. Those are really our um, security needs. And so we brought together over 120 notable Canadians, some that you've just identified. You know, we've got people from all walks of life, leaders in their fields from coast to coast who have signed on and said to say that we need to re-envision, you know, what security and defense uh, means in this day and age for Canada. And we don't believe that it's an investment in a new fleet of fighter jets. Well, it, I mean, it seems to me that, that from what I'm reading here, this is about more than just the price tag. And th- this is kind of a, you know, a fundamental question on, on what the Canadian forces should be. I mean, it seems like there's a real belief here that it's it's just not something Canada should have, period. I mean, even if, if the costs were a fraction, even if we were given fighter jets for free, I get the sense that maybe we shouldn't want them as, as part of the message here. Well, uh, we uh, agree with that. Um, I, I would like to just uh, point out to your listeners that a, a well-known Canadian diplomat, Daryl Copeland, who had you know a decades-long career with Canada's Foreign Service, he wrote a book called uh, Guerrilla Diplomacy, and he said in an interview recently that the most um, that there are no military solutions for the most profound problems imperiling the planet. It must be diplomacy. And in this day and age, you know, when we're facing a global pandemic, when we're facing catastrophic climate change, there are, there are environmentally friendly, nonviolent tools at our disposal, at our disposal that we can, that we can employ that don't involve you know, bombing other countries with a fleet of new fighter jets. We need actually to be cooperating with the international community to solve our common uh, our common challenges. And so we, uh, you know, think that this fighter jet issue is a key issue for us to, you know, rethink what security means, rethink what natural and uh, national defense means. And we're, you know, calling for... Uh, the plans for the purchase of new fighter jets to be grounded and for a reimagining of of defense and security so uh things you know we could think of things like you know natural defense instead of national defense where we have you know a, a crews of people who are trained dealing with forest fires and dealing with water protection and retrofitting homes and buildings something similar is being called for in the united states it's an environmental um, civil defense force and it's something that you know something that we should consider consider in Canada and then you know just to add as well I mean if we think about how Canadian fire fighter um, jets have been used our current fleet of CF-18s over the past 20 years I mean they've been used to 
bombed Serbia in an illegal NATO intervention in 1999. Canada led the bombing of Libya in 2011 that totally destroyed and destabilized uh, the country, and it led to a humanitarian and refugee crisis across North Africa and the Mediterranean where tens of thousands of people have died, you know, fleeing the country. And, you know, fighter Canadian fighter jets were also most recently used uh, from 2014 on to bomb Syria and Iraq, you know, fomenting the, the, uh, the conflict in the Middle East and again leading to um, a mass refugee crisis. So a fighter jet or a 20th century uh, tool, you know, for a Cold War that's long over. You know, the 21st 21st challenges that we're faced today, we just don't need a new fleet of fighter jets. There are much more pressing priorities for Canadians. Right, but I mean, fighter fighter jets don't make these decisions. I mean, it almost seems as though we're, we're embodying uh, foreign and defense policy decisions in these machines. Obviously, fighter jets, tanks, guns, warships are, are tools of war that, that we hope to not have to use and feel that uh, when, when necessary to defend our interests, we will. But, but they are tools. I, I would argue as well when it comes to fighter jets, there is a question of sovereignty, isn't there? When it comes to being able to patrol our airspace, uh, that there is some value in that. What about that side of it? Well, we can we can uh, surveil our 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 borders and our coastlines, you know, with radar, with uh, unarmed drones. We are also co- collaborating with countries like Russia and China in 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 fora like the Arctic Council, like the United Nations, where we can you know resolve problems diplomatically and without without the threat of armed force and armed force you know canada continuing to maintain a very costly military that is also extremely con- uh, carbon intensive you know fighter jets are going to exacerbate the the climate crisis because you know they use excessive amount of fossil fuel fossil fuel they use a specialized fuel called jp8 one flight is equivalent to the emissions of a car in a year and fighter jets can't even fly long distance without without flying alongside of aerial aerial refuelers and so you know we see these pipe these these uh, fighter jets as pipelines in the sky and you know we need to mm-hmm. urgently end um, our use of fossil fuels. We, we 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 should not be investing in a fleet of new fighter jets that are going to lock us into carbon intensive militarism for the next three decades. Now, you, you mentioned diplomacy with China and Russia, which I, I think is interesting. I, I'm not sure to what extent we we can trust either China or Russia. I mean, would would you not? It's not fair to describe those two countries as as adversaries at present. Again, uh, we believe that this language of Russia and China being adversarial is really Cold War thinking, and it's it's a, a narrative. I mean, it's based on their actions. That, that, well, I mean, it's it, a narrative. You know, look, we, we can disagree on fighter jets, but I mean, it, it feels like we're 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 giving a pass to to the aggression of the belligerents of these two countries. Um, China, China is is actually the, the 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 number one thing china is working on right now is the belt and road initiative which is a development program where they are investing in upgrading 
and installing infrastructure in developing countries around around the world. What what China is doing is is working on a massive international development program. You know, we should not be engaged in militarism. We should be uh, doing the exact same thing China is doing uh, uh, in investing in international development, in, investing in economic partners. Um, China is not the adversary. It's it's NATO and the United States moving our warships in the South China Sea, and it's NATO and the and the United States and Canada that are moving our 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 troops and our warships and our fighter jets into Eastern Europe, provoking conflict with Russia. If we want to de-escalate conflict with these two countries. We need to t- talk seriously about demilitarizing, getting out of NATO, and working cooperatively and, you know, responsibly and maturely with these countries. Um, a, the, 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 the narrative that these two countries, Russia and China, are our adversaries just serves to, um, to you know, justify increased military, increased military spending and greater investments in weapon systems, which have the pocket of U.S. weapons manufacturers. So, you know, Canadians, uh, we need to prior, prioritize investments, like I said, in, in the, the, the urgent environmental and social needs of Canadians. All right. We'll leave it there, Tamara. Appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Thank you very much for having me. You have a good rest of your day. All right, you as well. There you go. Tamara Lawrence uh, with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, which has uh, spearheaded this campaign, the No New Fighter Jets campaign that uh, some of these uh, luminaries who we mentioned, Noam Chomsky, Stephen Lewis, Naomi Klein, Elizabeth May, David Suzuki, uh, Tegan and Sarah, the musicians, I think they're from uh, here in Alberta. Daryl Hannah's on that list. Yeah, some interesting names. Okay, so <laughs> you've heard the case for why we, we don't need new fighter jets. Look, I mean, it, it is a lot of money we're going to splash out on new fighter jets. I think we've kind of backed ourselves into a corner where uh, maybe we could have dealt with this a, a long time ago uh, at a much lower cost. Nonetheless, do you think we need new fighter jets? <laughs> Furthermore, I do think we need to belong to NATO. I do think it's important to have a close relationship with the United States. By the way, not buying new fighter jets just makes us all the more dependent on the United States. And uh, absolutely, the belligerence and the aggression of China and Russia is very real and something to be concerned about. When you get up into zero G, it feels natural, which is really weird because you've never really experienced it, but you're floating and it's calm and serene. Well, that's uh, Jeff Bezos, billionaire Jeff Bezos, uh, describing what it's like to float in space, very calm and serene. He got an opportunity to do that today on board his company, Blue Origins, New Shepard Rocket. So it's really, I think, an important milestone in, in where space travel is going. And, you know, raises a lot of interesting questions about who gets to go to space, who makes those decisions, who's in control here. You know, we're a long way from from 50 or 60 years ago. And, you know, one of the significant developments today, and uh, shouldn't be overshadowed by, uh, you know, another billionaire in space, was the fact that 82-year-old Wally Funk, 
who went through all the training and protocols in the 1960s to be an astronaut, didn't get the opportunity to go into space because of her gender, finally had that opportunity today. So it was an important milestone that, as I say, may be overshadowed by uh, yet another billionaire going up into space and what all of this represents. So there's a lot to process here. I think, the, you know, we're, we're watching a lot of history unfold before our eyes. Uh, joining us uh, for some thoughts uh, on all of this, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Katie Mack, who's a theoretical astrophysicist, assistant professor of physics at North Carolina State University, also a member of the uh, Leadership in Public Science Cluster and a, a well-known science communicator. Dr. Mack, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hi, uh, thanks for having me on. So quite a spectacle today for, for a lot of different reasons. Um, obviously, yeah. it's, it's hugely significant what's, what happened with Wally Funk. I mean, hugely significant in different ways with regards to Jeff Bezos. Just first of all, your overall yeah. impressions of all of this. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's a really uh, fascinating time right now in, in space travel. Uh, and we're, we're seeing this shift between um, from space being something that you can, you know, you can access if you are selected as an astronaut, go through training uh, to something, a situation where it'll be more common for people to be able to pay uh, to take a little trip to space uh, with one of these private companies. And, you know, it raises a lot of questions about what what that means for our society, how we want access to space to, to happen, um, and, you know, what these private companies will mean for the future of space travel, of transportation in general, um, and space exploration if they do, you know, go farther than just popping into space for a bit and coming back. Right. And I mean, you know, the idea of space as a, a destination or, you mm -hmm. know, um, you know, where tourists go or, you know, <laughs> you go for a lark. Yeah. It's, you know, I mean, if, if that's where this is going, that, that represents uh, a big change and probably not in a good way. Well, you know, it, it depends on, on who you ask if it's a good thing or not. Um, I, you know, it, it's an experience. It's, it's going to be like an extreme sport experience, I suppose, uh, to go and experience that weightlessness and see that different perspective. Um, and it will, for, you know, the foreseeable future, be only available to people who have a massive amount of money or who get lucky in one of these sort of sweepstakes uh, situations. So, uh, yeah. you know, the... Virgin Galactic has announced there's going to be a sweepstakes where people can, you know, hope to get that lucky ticket. Um, so there will be situations like that. And, you know, a few of these um, sort of one-offs, like uh, like Wally Funk getting invited to go, um, you know, sort of after a very, very long wait where she was clearly qualified back in the 60s and has had to wait uh, for, for a very long time for somebody to, to just give her a ticket. It, it's you know, it's it's a, it's a it's a strange situation, and and there's been a lot of discussion about whether we want uh, this evolution of of space access to go this way. And you know, I I feel I have mixed feelings about it. You know, I like the idea of more people being able to experience space, but I also don't know how I feel about you know that being something that's pretty much exclusively for extraordinarily rich people um, for the foreseeable future. And, and I don't know what what impact that will have on society. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, if we, we get wistful about the way it used to be, the idea of uh, you know being an astronaut is a meritocracy, and it was all in the pursuit of science, that Wally Funk's a reminder, isn't she, that mm -hmm. it, it, 
it wasn't quite that way, that, that if it was that no. way, that she would have gone into space many decades ago. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, the whole idea of meritocracy is, is quite complicated um, when you think about how we define merit in society in various ways. But certainly, uh, you know, it is a good example of how government agencies like, like NASA can make decisions that are, you know, uh, politically motivated or, or otherwise reflect uh, societal uh, prejudices and you know now we're we're transitioning to something where it's going to be the the whims of billionaires and uh, money <laughs> is is mm. that better I don't know it's uh, it's different and it's still not anything like equitable. Does it represent though potentially not not even just for billionaires necessarily but the idea that accessing space becomes a lot easier maybe a lot more accessible, that the end result over mm. time is going to be a lot more expeditions and a lot more missions and maybe other countries who, who weren't a part of, of all of this in the past maybe being able to do some of this in, in the future. If it means more access to space, is that potentially uh, a net benefit for science? Uh, you know, potentially people have talked about how uh, there may it may be easier for scientists to get experiments up into space if if these companies make it cheaper, um, mm. and you know there there could be arguments for just having more people experience that uh, perspective uh, in a very personal way. So it's not that there are no upsides in in the sense that you know as this develops in the future it may become you know a very good and, and helpful aspect of, of society and it may be a complement to you know uh, national space organization uh, activities uh, it's it's kind of hard to say at the moment uh, what that'll evolve like I do I do kind of wish there were a, a different way to go about it I don't know what that would look like but it would be it would be nice if, if there weren't this sort of you know hierarchy of if you're super super rich you can go just for fun or you know if you're if you're selected by a national agency you can go as as a job and and everyone else you know that's that's just not that's just not an option i don't i don't know if there is a better alternative and i've i've struggled with this idea myself you know is there a way for space to really be open to everybody and and i don't know it's interesting. Maybe it was inevitable. I mean, you know, you think, um, you know, maybe the example of, uh, you know, going to Antarctica or the depths of the ocean, going to view the, the wreckage of the Titanic. Um, it wasn't accessible to people, you know, many decades ago. But now, yeah, I mean, if you have money, you can go to Antarctica. You can go see penguins. You can go down and, and get a glimpse of the, you know, the wreckage of the Titanic. You know, these, these areas are once the exclusive domain of, of science have been opened mm -hmm. up, I suppose, almost in, in, in the same sense that maybe space is. Well, and we have to worry as well about, you know, when you open places like that to tourism, uh, you run the risk of major ecological damage, you run the yeah. risk of, yeah. uh, you know, just a, a whole lot of uh, spending and resource uh, use in a way that, that can be detrimental to society, even if it's, you know, a lot of fun for the people involved in the trips. Uh, so that that's another concern that, that you have to keep in mind um, whenever, whenever you have decisions being made fun fundamentally on, on financial considerations and, and you know the enrichment of, of the very wealthy. 
Well, as you say, I mean, you know, it's it's something you're torn on. I think a lot of people in the scientific community are, are torn on this. So as this continues to to move along here, what what are you going to be watching for? What, what are some of the big factors that, that might, you know, tip your opinion one way or the other? Well, you know, I'm going to be uh, seeing what these companies do with the with the access, with the wealth that, that they generate from uh, having these these programs, these opportunities. I'm going to see, you know, what what the population of uh, space tourists develops into in the future, and and if it really does just become a kind of, you know, a kind of a fun uh, fun extreme sport for the extra, extraordinarily wealthy, or or if there's uh, actual scientific development that comes out of it. Um, you know, I'll I'll be very interested to see how this this goes. You know, goes forward in the future, and and I'll be interested to see how the the specific uh, people who are involved in this, if if they do change their perspective on the world in any way. You know, there's this this idea that going to space can give you a different view of humanity and our sort of united uh, situation in, on Earth, and and I don't know, I don't know if that's uh, if that's something we can expect here or not. We'll leave it there for now. Much more at uh, astrocady.com. Professor Mack, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. All the best. Uh, That is uh, Katie Mack, who's an astrophysicist, assistant professor of physics at North Carolina State uh, University, and um, also author of the book, The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. Much more, as mentioned, astrocady.com. Look, we got another situation in B.C. It was a Coptic church in B.C. Uh, burned to the ground and what police are calling suspicious. There's been a spate of this. And some some old historic churches have gone up in flames. Churches that are located on First Nations uh, have gone up in flames. And, and clearly, look, this is, is linked to everything that's been going on with residential schools and a lot of anger directed at religious institutions for whatever role they might have played in this. And I think we know this in part because of some of the justifications that uh, some have tried to offer for all of this. You know, one high-profile example recently was the executive director of the BC Civil Liberties Association, uh, who tweeted in response to an article about this problem, quote, burn it all down. As in, good, they're getting what they deserve. Let's see more of this. And my goodness, this is not helpful at all. First of all, these are crimes, potentially very dangerous crimes, this kind of arson. What, what is this helping? What is this accomplishing? If anything, I think this is a, an obstacle to, to moving forward. There's a great piece up at thehub.ca making this argument that for reconciliation to stand a chance, vandalism must stop. Well, joining us uh, to talk more about it is uh, the author of this piece, Dr. Brian Bird, is an assistant professor of law at UBC. Again, thehub.ca. You can read this piece. It's up today. Brian, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. Yeah, like I say, I mean, you know, this 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 is escalating. This is concerning. It's it's hard to see how how this is helpful in any way. What, what's concerning you about this situation? Well, I should just say off the top, Rob, uh, that um, I did a bit of uh, more digging after the article that you mentioned uh, 
that I was published in the Hub today, and the number of churches uh, across Canada that have been uh, targeted for arson or for vandalism uh, is close to 50 now. It's estimated about 45 to 50 uh, have been um, since June. Uh-huh. That's a pretty short period of time. Basically, in about a month or so, there's been, and across Canada, in uh, most provinces, um, the epicenter at the start was British Columbia, and it, Alberta's been hit, Nova Scotia, Ontario, Saskatchewan, uh, and other places. So, uh, it's it's a it's quite um, concerning uh, to me. Uh, it's disturbing. I was you know I feel quite sad that I even had to write an article like this. That this is happening in in, in Canada because as you say, um, this is uh, and I agree this is not helping at all with respect to reconciliation. And I there was an opportunity I think here. Uh, there I think there still is an opportunity um, given what's occurred. These discoveries of these very disturbing discoveries um, at these former residential schools of uh, these unmarked graves to build new bridges to move forward on reconciliation. And this just mm-hmm. goes in the complete opposite direction. And just in terms of my concerns, I think it's twofold. It's, of course, the, the acts themselves, but also, to be perfectly frank, and I say this in the, in the, in the piece, it's just, I think, an insufficient response from our political leaders, um, both in terms of the, kind of the intensity and kind of the frequency of the response, but even just how quickly or well, and how slow the response has been. Uh, the first response is by... The Prime Minister were uh, more than a week after yeah, the first burnings, uh, first arsons, and by that time, uh, there had been several churches burned. You know, and it's important to point out, and, and, you, and you do so in the piece, that we've seen numerous Indigenous leaders and, and groups condemn these acts, making the argument that they do indeed jeopardize reconciliation. You know, you describe these as opportunistic agitators who are maybe trying to foment chaos, right? So, sure, look, there's legitimate anger against some of these institutions or, you know, the lack of accountability that's been there over the years. But, you know, we we should be careful to recognize that while, while condemning this, right? Absolutely. It's been heartening to see so many Indigenous leaders and groups come out and very strongly um, say that this is injurious to, to reconciliation, it jeopardizes it, it's going to do nothing um, uh, to to help it. And indeed, as I mentioned in the piece, it seems from the circumstantial evidence that we have so far, I don't think there's been any arrests yet, that this is more likely than not um, not Indigenous groups or individuals doing this, given the fact that you know the first fires, a number of them, have been on Indigenous lands themselves, uh, of churches that serve Indigenous uh, um, communities. Uh, so right there, and, and you know, to add on to that, we've had a number of uh, burnings. The most recent one uh, that you mentioned at the top uh, in Surrey, British Columbia, of a Coptic Orthodox church. Uh, there's obviously no connection whatsoever between that particular Christian denomination and the residential schools. So I don't think that the um, legitimacy of these arsons should depend on whether there was a connection, but I think that just goes to show that this is a far more nefarious uh, kind, of, um, uh, kind of activity that we're seeing. Right, and obviously, you know, police are investigating these these arsons. I'm not even sure how many arrests there have been uh, in in you know these dozens of of arsons across the country. But we do have examples. I mentioned one of them. You know, the executive director of the BC Civil Liberties Association. But you point to others where, I mean, you've got a lawyer, a law professor. You know, those who are trying to justify this or applaud this. It's it's very bizarre and concerning. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, in my my role as a law professor, as a lawyer. Um, it, From that angle, it was very concerning to me um, to see members of the legal profession uh, kind of openly, as you said, kind of endorsing, legitimizing, uh, kind of not forgive the the turn of phrase, but kind of fanning the flames of of uh, of this situation, Um, especially when lawyers, amongst other responsibilities, are supposed to promote the rule of law. Um, And so when you see actions that 
uh, at the very least, uh, kind of muddy those waters or maybe even contradict that, that duty. Uh, that's very concerning because it, it speaks to perhaps some deeper, as I mentioned in the piece, uh, some, some threads, some very important threads that hold us together as a society ruled by law and committed to, you know, to basic decency. Um, I worry that some of those threads may be uh, fraying and um, at risk of even uh, tearing if we're not careful. Yeah, and I think this all takes us to, to a dark place, doesn't it? That, you know, we, we still need to recognize that we are a, a society ruled by law, as you put it, that this is how we move forward. This is how we deal with problems and challenges in this country. Once we start justifying vigilantism and violence, I mean, is that a slippery slope, do you think? I think so. The worry is that um, you can just kind of imagine in your mind where this could go, and it's just nowhere good because... It's going to. We just know. I mean, it's it's it's. Uh, these are. I don't mean to sound cliche, but I mentioned the piece that indeed violence can you know beget violence. It can cultivate resentment and tribalism, and that's the exact opposite of what we need right now in Canada. We need a coming together. Uh, we need a building up, not a not a burning down, not a tearing down. We need, and there is, I think, an opportunity here, a very unique one, um, to build those bridges. Um, it's it's complicated. It'll take. It's not going to happen overnight, but there is, I think, a, a strong appetite. Um, for moving forward um, and to try to move towards reconciliation and, and get closer to that destination. And when we have these kinds of acts, um, all it does is jeopardize that. So I really hope that um, that we'll see an end to this um, yesterday um, because uh, the longer this goes on, uh, the more uh, precarious our situation becomes. Indeed. Well, some important points, much more as mentioned uh, up at the hub.ca. Professor Bird, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. All the best. Uh, that is Brian Bird, assistant professor of the Peter A. Allard School of Law at University of British Columbia. His piece uh, up at the hub.ca. You know, he says reconciliation is a steeper and longer climb, but is indeed the better way. We must summon our better angels at this crossroads, or the fires may spread beyond brick and mortar to something far more precious the tangible but ever fragile ties of kindness and goodwill that as Canadians bind us together. So I think some important words about why this approach of vigilantism, violence, this kind of anger, these fires, arsons, this needs to be rejected comprehensively. So to see not just those who smirk at this or wink at this, those who would justify this or call for this, this is not helping anything. All right, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Riggenridge with you. Afternoons on 770 CHQR. You know, there's been a lot of conversation uh, recently about um, how Alberta generates revenue and whether we got the right mix in Alberta and whether that should change, right? And, you know, the conversation around taxation is an interesting one. What, what purpose is it serving? Obviously, part of it is to generate revenue for government. So government can spend money on, on programs, the programs we expect government to deliver on. But you also want to do so in a way that minimizes the negative impacts. All taxes are going to have some negative impact. Uh, so how do you minimize that? Furthermore, I suppose, to what extent are you trying to give your own jurisdiction an advantage over others? That becomes relevant as well. So taking all of that into consideration, I want to look more closely at the issue of personal tax. Now, going back to the days of Ralph Klein, a decision was made, I think it was around 2000, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to flatten Alberta's tax so that everybody paid the same rate. Obviously, we have a generous basic personal exemption here in Alberta, but um, that it would be very simple. 10% uh, tax, that would be it. 
And that existed right up until uh, the NDP took over in 2015. So for most Albertans, the rate still is 10%. uh, But it goes to 12%, 13%, 14%, all the way up to 15% once you get north of about $130,000. So we no longer have a flat tax. We have, like what other jurisdictions in Canada have, what's known as a progressive income tax system. The report out today from the Fraser Institute, though, says abandoning the flat tax was abandoning a tax advantage that Alberta had and that it's time to consider going back to it. Joining us to talk more about it is the author of this report, which you can read for yourself at FraserInstitute.org. Dr. Agit Faraday is a professor of economics at McEwen University in Edmonton and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Dr. Faraday, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you for having me, Rob. Well, so talk about why you know we we um, you know why it's important to take a look at this question and and what the personal income tax system should strive to do in Alberta. Uh, as you mentioned in your introductory remark, uh, prior to 2015, Alberta had a significant uh, tax advantage, and these tax advantages were built on three ma- major pillars. One was uh, the absence of provincial sales tax. The second one was, uh, as you mentioned, uh, a single rate income tax or so-called flat tax. And the third one was a low, cor- low corporate income tax. Now, that tax advantage was partly eroded in 2015 when the new government, MDP government, uh, introduced a progressive income tax system. So this progressive income tax system uh, changed uh, or reduce Alberta tax advantage. The, the new government, as you know, uh, reduced the corporate income tax, but the progressive income tax system uh, is still there. So my research focus on this issue. If we want to uh, regain part of the lost Alberta tax advantage, what would be the costs, what would be the benefits and costs associated with a flat tax system? What would happen or what would be the budgetary implication of going to the flat tax system? So that would be the major focus of uh, my research. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly, I mean, you know, there's an obvious simplicity in, in, in the flat tax. It's the same yeah. rate that if someone's income goes up, there's, you know, not the confusion about the rate change, etc. So obviously, simplicity is, is a factor. But is simplicity important when it comes to the tax system? Uh, good point. Simplicity is one factor, but that's not the only beneficial factor of going to flat tax. In fact, when we have a competitive tax system, when we have a flat tax system, what happens is that we'll be able to uh, attract high-skilled workers into Alberta or we'll uh, encourage high-skilled workers to remain in Alberta. Maybe corporations can be embedded in Alberta. That will create more jobs. More entrepreneurial activities will be also created. All this will have a stimulative effect on the economy. It may create more jobs in the economy. So ordinary Albertans who may not directly benefit from the flat tax can indirectly benefit if the economy is stimulated by reducing the income tax. Now, in Alberta, the uh, rate of 10% still exists and exists for everybody earning up to $131,000. So that, that's still the vast majority of Albertans who, who pay that 10%. So yeah. why, why is it important then that we address the, you know, those who, who earn above it? A good point, point. I mean, going from the current progressive income tax system, uh, theoretically, to the flat tax system, if if one chooses to go from the progressive tax system to the flat tax system, you are right, only very few individuals can be impacted. 
But this will send a significant and important message for entrepreneurs and investors. That will stimulate the economy. You are right. The vast majority of Albertans we may not be directly impacted by such tax change, but they can be indirectly and positively impacted by the tax change or by, by going into the flat tax system. So yes, directly, many people will not be impacted, but indirectly, they can be positively impacted. Well, and it's an important point because, you know, I mean, obviously there's the politics of it. Essentially, you yeah. know, this, I mean, it, it technically is a tax cut for the rich and would definitely yeah. be portrayed that way. So it, it would be a tough sell. Exactly. I mean, especially during these times when the, uh, the Alberta provincial government budget is in the red and we have been in the red for a long time and uh, associated with the pandemic particularly, uh, selling this kind of tax uh, policy proposal is very challenging and politically probably it may be infeasible right now. But what, what I'm, I'm talking about is even if we don't go all the way to the flat tax rate system, if we just uh, tweak or change the top income tax rate, let's say go, we go from 15% to 14%, even that such a minor tax change can uh, uh, help us regain our, partly our Alberta tax advantage. It will make Alberta the jurisdiction with the lowest tax rate uh, and the revenue, particularly the revenue cost for the uh, going from 15% to 14% is only 20 million in four years. However, as you mentioned, if we go all the way to the flat tax system, let's say if the government goes gradually uh, to a flat tax system from the current progress system, in four years, the budgetary implication can be significant. There will be, according to my calculation, according to my research, there will be a revenue loss of about $1.4 billion, which is roughly 9% as compared to the no tax reform baseline scenario. Yeah. So you are right. It is very challenging. It is. Now, and look, and, and the Alberta government has decided to reduce the corporate income tax in the hopes that, you know, it makes Alberta a more attractive jurisdiction. It, it draws investment, draws companies here. Yeah. Let's talk about why personal income tax matters as well. What are the potential benefits of, of reforming or, or reducing personal income taxes? Uh, good, good question. Uh, uh, there are various uh, important uh, elements to the advantage. One, as I said, is because uh, traditionally, our Alberta tax advantage was based on these three pillars. The remaining pillar, which we didn't have uh, tweaked so far, is the income tax. So if we uh, adjust or reduce the income tax rate here, we can regain the Alberta tax advantage. But what will that bring to Alberta and Albertans? One, it will increase entrepreneurial activities. Entrepreneurs now, they can take a higher risk. They can invest more. They can hire more. That's an advantage. The other advantage is uh, it can uh, stimulate or it can encourage uh, high-skilled individuals to move to Alberta or remain in Alberta. And all, again, this is an important advantage for Alberta. And if you look at from the business perspective, corporations may find it attractive to locate head offices uh, in Alberta. Of course, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. And we may not see that kind of benefit right away. But over the long term, this kind of advantage can be uh, obtained by Alberta. Very interesting. Uh, much more is mentioned at FraserInstitute.org. Uh, Dr. Faraday, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Thank, thank you so much for having me.
appreciate All the best. Uh, there you go. That's Dr. Agit Faraday, professor of economics at McCune University. They author this report uh, out today from the Fraser Institute saying we threw away a tax advantage when we ended the flat tax and saying that returning to it would provide some benefits. As he says, increased entrepreneurial activities, more skilled workers migrating to or remaining in Alberta, the development uh, of a stronger base of corporate head offices in the province, and other benefits. He says the cost of this would not be that significant, but I guess that's that's subjective. He forecasts that if we went to uh, the 10% flat tax over the uh, first four years of that change, it would represent about $1.3 billion in lost tax revenue. So that's over four years. Ultimately, yes, I mean, it would be a tax cut for the wealthy. I don't think there's any getting around that. I mean, we hear that rhetoric all the time, but in this case, it would probably be more or less true. You don't start paying above the 10% rate in Alberta until your income is over $130,000. You don't pay the top rate of 15% until you get over $314,000. So to be in the top 1% in Alberta, and obviously those, those numbers change from year to year, you'd sort of be in the neighborhood of around $200,000. So getting to 130,000, you're not quite in the top 1%, but once you start getting into the 13, 14, 15% tax bracket, yeah, we're talking about the top 1% of income earners. So politically, I think that would be a really tough sell, which is probably why Jason Kenney left it alone when he came into office. Then again, look, Ralph Klein took the risk, and uh, they believed that it was the right thing to do. And, you know, it, it remained in place uh, for, for a long time. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.